Mark chapter 2 and verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, Some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralysed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all, This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. I think it would be fair to say that Jesus has always been a controversial figure. I'm sure you will know something of that if you were here and you'd call yourself a Christian and you chat to your mates about what goes on at church and what you believe, that kind of thing. Maybe in a sense there's nothing surprising about controversy following him though. Many of the most influential people in all of history have been surrounded by controversy. But the difference is, generally with the people who controversy follows, it's their ideas, which is what makes them special. What is the problem? So Karl Marx thinks his political economic theories. Sigmund Freud, his unconventional, bizarre theories, at least for the time, of mental illness. It was their ideas, the concepts they taught, the teaching that they gave that made them controversial. The issue with Jesus is it's the other way around. You see, the vast majority of people wholeheartedly agree with and indeed applaud many of Jesus' ideas. Who could personally argue against turning the other cheek? It's an honourable notion. People like it. Treat your neighbour as yourself. Again, what a great idea. That would solve many of the world's problems if we did that. Who can really complain? That the moral values of Jesus have hardly if ever been contradicted. But unlike Freud or Marx or others, the problem with Jesus is not what he said, not the ideas that he had, but the person that he was. So if Christians had been prepared to simply call him a, a teacher or a philosopher or, or a guru or, or a miracle worker then he would have gone down in history as a saint and been revered by almost everybody. But the problem was not the ideas that he had, but the person that he was. The problem lies in the fact that Christians have always been unwilling to pigeonhole him into the slot of teacher or genius. But the only word they say that can really hold him is that of God. The only category is that of divine. And you see, what we get in these first 12 verses of chapter 2 of Mark are extraordinary verses. At first they seem like a nice little story, but then when you reflect on them and you dissect them and you work out what's going on and you work out why people are so angry with what Jesus says, you see it's not a nice little story, but this is where the opposition towards Jesus starts. From here on in, 
the pace begins to gather against him in Mark's Gospel. So far it's been pretty plain sailing. From henceforth it's a bit more complicated, there's more hostility. What I want us to do as we look at these 12 verses is split the passage into two, under two headings. The first one is there. Our greatest need is forgiveness of sins. seems pretty clear as you encounter this paralytic what his greatest need is. It doesn't take a genius. He has a big problem and the problem is he cannot walk. He is paralysed. And if that happens now, that is hard enough to cope with. So just imagine seeing all your friends as you grow up, seeing them dance, walking on the beach with sand between your toes, playing football, going upstairs, simply able to get around the place without the help of somebody else. And you see, back then, there weren't any wheelchairs. If this guy wanted to get anywhere, he had to rely completely on other people. Imagine that, wherever you wanted to go, you want to go shopping, you want to go to the park, you want to go to work, you want to go to the toilets, you've got to rely on other people. Wherever, whenever, whatever. And this guy clearly had a massive problem and it would have been obvious what he needed most in all the world. And yet, unlike the leper from last week, who shouldn't really have been there, the paralysed man is unable to make his way to Jesus. But he's got good friends, it seems. Maybe, maybe his friends think, or he thinks, this Jesus guy could, could help. Maybe he's the guy that we need. And the first part of the plan seems to go pretty well. They, they carry their friend to the house where Jesus is, back in Capernaum. We don't know whose house it is. It may have been his, it may have been his family's, it may be somebody else's. And they carry him on some kind of makeshift stretcher. plan is working. But there's a problem. And the problem is Jesus is popular. So verse 2, people came to hear him preach. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, the reason he came, he says, 138, was so he could preach, so he could teach about the kingdom of God and the crowds are gathering. The crowds have heard he's back in town. They've, they've swarmed around him. He's back in Capernaum, so the plan needs to be adapted. The crowds mean they can't get close enough, so what do you do? They have a cunning plan. They have ideas and they have faith, verse 5. And so their faith means they persevere and onto the roof they go. Think crowds in the house, crowds outside, flat roof. And up they go, and I wonder who felt the plaster fall first from the ceiling. You can imagine the cries of disbelief in the room. A small hole becomes a bigger hole and then a bigger one and you see little faces peep over the edge. And then some kind of bed is shifted over and gently lowered down into the midst of them. Right in the centre of the room is this man. He can't move. Imagine the cries of anger from the guy who owned the home, whoever it was. Not going to be a little hole, is it? People are quite big. 
And so there they are, mission accomplished, one miracle short of a five-a-side football team. Now all Jesus has to do is heal him. Come on, Jesus. And so verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, you see, he said to the paralysed man, son, get up and walk. But he didn't say that. He said, son, your sins are forgiven. Which is astonishing. How offensive is that? Did Jesus care nothing for the man? Can he not see what this man's problem is? It doesn't take a genius. Just imagine his friends on the roof. What does he say? Sins? No, 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 it's his legs. He can't walk. He's not just extremely laid back. He he needs to be healed, Jesus. But the point is, Jesus hasn't got it wrong. He cares for this man more deeply than anybody else in the room, than anybody else standing there. His friends think his greatest need is healing. But Jesus, the expert doctor, identifies an even greater need, an even more urgent problem. More urgent than not being able to walk. More urgent than having to rely on your friends the whole time. He needs to have his sins forgiven. Being unable to walk is clearly a serious problem. But Jesus says there's an even bigger problem. Sin is more life-threatening than sickness. And what is sin, we say? The Bible says sin is that which separates us from God. Sin is the brokenness and fallenness of the world that comes from the people that God has made not living with him in charge. And we saw a bit of it last week. If you remember, if you were here, we began to think about sickness. So we saw, do you remember the mortality of Simon's mother-in-law? Verse 29, 30, 31, we said that mortality points to death and death points to judgment from God because we've walked out on him. So illness points to God's judgment. Or we saw the leper, he was unclean, he was separate, he was distant, he was, he was dead, unable to worship God. And yet Jesus, we saw, has the power to deal with sickness, to raise her up. Jesus has the power to deal with uncleanness and the leper, to to reconcile him to the people and to God. Maybe he's the one God promised. Maybe he's the king we've been waiting for. The one who's going to come and reverse the effects of the fall. But here we see more. We see he's got power to deal with the thing that's caused sickness, the thing that has caused a broken world. He says he's come to deal with sin that is the root cause of our broken world and humanity. And we're all in the same boat. It's interesting, as Jesus is presented with this paralysed man, very needy, very obviously needy, he sees with absolute clarity what this man needs more than anything else. And do you know, it's not what my knee-jerk reaction would be. It's not really how I think about the world. His friends thought that he needed healing. Jesus knew better. He needed forgiving. What does it mean? It means that Jesus is contradicting us when we live as though people and things and feelings are our greatest needs for us to enjoy life. 
or wealth or health or family or success or grades or a spouse. Everything is relativized when you see what our greatest need is. It's very challenging. So if I was to ask you, what do you think your greatest need is in life, what would you say? If you're a Christian here this evening, you know the right answer. You know you're meant to say forgiveness, sins dealt with, being reconciled with the God who made me, a right relationship, the relationship I was made for. And I know that you know that, and I know that. But here's the thing, functionally, what do we crave in life? Practically, what do we think we need most in life? And I wonder if here's the problem of contentment for many of us as Western Christians. We live as though other things are more important in life. These other things overshadow and complicate our lives. And if I knew my greatest need was sins being dealt with, and if I believed my greatest need was sins being dealt with, and if I had that perspective on my life, I wonder if I'd be a whole lot more thankful. And a whole lot more content. And each day I would have joy. Because fundamentally I knew everything was kind of okay, really. And it might be hard and life hurts. But actually, I have what I need most in all the world. Problem is, I look at the paralysed man and my knee-jerk reaction is thinking, well, he needs to walk. I don't think he needs to be forgiven most. Too easily we look at the world and see it not the way Jesus does, but the way everybody else does. So it's an extraordinary passage. Do you see this? This man comes to Jesus and we see his greatest need is forgiveness of sins. But then it gets more offensive. Because we see that only Jesus can forgive our sins. Verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why? Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Can Can you feel the temperature in the room just drops? There is a gasp. Because they're thinking, who on earth do you think you are, Jesus, forgiving sins? Will you be quiet? Only God forgives sins. How dare you say this kind of stuff? That is his territory, and speaking like this is blasphemous. Did you see, recognising sin to be the world's biggest problem is one thing. Any religious guru can do that and teach that, but to actually be able to deal with that sin, to claim that you can forgive then you've crossed the line. That is rude. You've gone too far, Jesus. You've stepped into God's domain there. We don't like it. Of course, the thing is, they're absolutely right. They are absolutely right. Forgiving sin is God's right. It is God's right only. This is really important. Maybe you're here, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you've got friends who you're chatting these things through with. This is something really important to wrestle with. At the heart of the controversy of Jesus, we see the teachers of the law were spot on. So, I'll give you an example. If I were to go up to Andy and punch him in the face, and then pick on someone, Kitty says, that's okay, Dan, I forgive you. 
It's ridiculous and it's ineffective. She doesn't have the right to forgive me. It's nothing to do with her. I need to be forgiven by Andy because I've hurt him. He is the one that I've wronged. That is the relationship that is broken down. If my relationship with Andy is restored, he needs to forgive me. It's got nothing to do with Kitty. And if we said earlier that sin is all about us and God, and our bad attitude toward God, it's as if we have punched God in the face. And so who is the one who has the right to forgive sins? Who is the one who can deal with that broken relationship? It's God. It's only God who can deal with that broken relationship. It's only God who can forgive sins. All sin, even sin that is clearly and obviously against others, as I punch Andy, is primarily an offence against God, though. Let's give you an example of this from the Bible. Um, Psalm 51 is a well-known psalm. It's a psalm that King David wrote as he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Obviously, he's wronged her. Obviously, he's wronged her husband, whom he then carefully and deliberately had removed from the equation by putting him on the front line of war. But listen to what David writes as he writes this. Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So, in a sense, his sin was horizontal. It was how he related to others. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He had her husband killed. But in reality, the vertical dimension was the real problem. Ultimately, he sinned against God. And so do you see, as we see this comment from Jesus, the point is only God on earth could forgive people's sins. When Jesus says your sins are forgiven, he is making a huge claim. He is making an almighty claim. He's claiming to be God on earth. That's really worth noting. It's worth noting because people often say to us, well, of course, you've not read your Bible properly. Jesus never actually claimed to be God, did he? They look smug. I read it in an article last week from an ex-pastor of all people, seemingly a very confused ex-pastor, who said just that. He said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God and, and, and your pastor doesn't want you to know about that, was the article. What does he mean? Well, Jesus might not have walked around shouting to everybody that he was God, but we've already seen it in Mark. What happens at the baptism? What does God the Father say? And of course he does walk around doing the kind of stuff that God does. He, he says the kind of stuff that God says. He, deli- he deliberately forgives people, recognising the implications of that. We've seen he can hardly go into a town without being swamped as here by the crowds, let alone if he were to present himself publicly as God. He's got a job to do on the cross. At this point in his ministry he is looking to keep things quiet, deliberately this messianic secret that he keeps covered until the right time. He shuts up demons who know who he is. He leaves the crowds when things get too big. He's not going to grab a a microphone, a megaphone, and explicitly announce he's God's son. But we're meant to join the dots. 
Do you see, as he forgives this paralytic, as he deals with his greatest needs, we're meant to join the dots. Who is it that forgives sins? Who can do that? And you see, the teachers of the law join the dots. And they get it right. And they are angry. Maybe you're a sceptic. And you say, well, was there anything to his claim though? Anyone can claim stuff. Anyone can say, I I forgive you, even though you've not been wronged. How do we know he has the power to forgive this guy? How do we know this is God walking around on earth? Well, Jesus knows exactly what's going on in their minds. And so he asks the people a question, verse 9. You see, he says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? Which one is easier? I take it it's to say, your sins are forgiven. Because no one can see if you've done it. There's no external evidence. It's not clear, it's not obvious. But if you tell someone in a wheelchair to get up, and they can't do it, pretty clear that you're a fraud. So do you see, how's Jesus going to prove that he has authority to forgive sins? How's he going to prove that he is the real deal? How is he going to prove who he is? Well, in order to prove the unseen action of forgiving, he does the seen action of healing. In order to prove that he can forgive, so he heals. And he says, get up and walk. And the man does exactly that. Which means when he says to the man, your sins are forgiven, then we have evidence that that also is true. The healing shows the forgiving. And people came expecting to see a healer, and he did plenty of healing. The Messiah was always going to do that kind of stuff. But this raises the stakes a bit. What you see here is God on earth forgiving sins and offering healing as a proof of his authority, a proof of his identity even. I take it this would be surprising. God's king hasn't just come to deal with the consequences of sin. He's come to deal with the actual sin itself. He's not just come to deal with the consequences of living in a broken world that's walked out on God. He's actually come to deal with what makes it broken. God's anger against our sin. See, it's not just the symptoms of the disease, it's not just sickness and suffering, he's come to deal with the disease itself. Come to deal with sin. And as Mark unfolds week by week, we'll see how it is that he can forgive. We'll see how it is that the offence against God can actually be dealt with. We'll see how it's about the cross. It's as if he's, I take it, he's buying stuff now on credit. No wonder the story finishes as it does. They praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Do you see, Jesus was completely unique. Jesus is completely unique. Many people think today even he's a good teacher. 
maybe think he's a healer, a miracle worker, a guru. I just don't really know, people say. They give him the reverence and respect that he is due, but, but he's due so much more than they give him. This story knocks that idea on the head. It, the crowds have never seen anything like him. No one has dared claim to be God and lived a life that consistently backed up that claim. This is God walking around on earth. In a particular place and at a particular time, you could see him. The sun takes on flesh. Maybe that you're here and you've never quite grappled with before this idea of who Jesus actually is. Maybe you see something just from these 12 verses of how controversial he is. Maybe you see why they claimed he was being blasphemous. And from here on in, they do start to hound him. The start of the next chapter, chapter 3, then you've got opposing forces who gather together wanting to get rid of him. I'd love to invite you to um, come on the 20th of October, if that's you, or if you've got friends who you think would benefit from these kinds of things. We've got a Christianity Explored course starting. It's a chance to think a bit harder about who Jesus is, think about why he matters, what it means to follow him. Um, there'll be food. We're actually going through Mark's Gospel as well, and then a chance to um, ask questions and discuss and sort of wrestle with ideas. If that's you or that's your mates, we'd, we'd love you to come along. So do chat with Andy afterwards after I've apologised for punching him in the face. Um, we, just so we know in terms of numbers for catering. But if you're here and you are a Christian... Know that you, like me, are the paralytic. I think that's us in the story. Jesus has authority to say to us, your sins are forgiven. Your greatest problem in all the world is dealt with. There is no sin too many. There is no sin too big. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And he says to us, you're forgiven. You have life. Let's pray.